our text this morning is like a very rare gemstone. It's like a jewel in a rare setting or perhaps an oasis in the desert. Now to be sure, there are a lot of people that don't believe it. There are a lot of people that feel like our text is beautiful poetry and nothing more than that. Because you see, there are some people that have found life to be especially hard. They've found life to be incredibly harsh. And because of this, some folks are going to absolutely just turn away from this very beautiful passage of Scripture. They'll shout from the housetops. It simply isn't true. And they will insist to anyone that will listen that their own tragic life experiences will demonstrate the utter falsity of this text. But this text declares for us a faith that is worth our possessing. The psalmist would write in Psalm chapter 30 and verse 5, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Those who say they can't believe this text remind me of a story I read about a beautiful painting of the sunset that a woman was looking at. And as she gazed upon this beautiful painting of the sunset and spoke to the artist, she said to him, she said flatly that I've never seen a sunset that looked like your painting. And true enough, his painting was beautiful. It was exquisite. And she had never seen a sunset as beautiful as that painting. And she told him that in no uncertain terms. She said, I've never seen a sunset like that. And he looked at her and he smiled. He said, but don't you wish that you could? There may be some who cannot share the faith of the psalmist. Maybe you're even one of them this morning. Maybe you can't share that great faith where he writes, weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Maybe you can't share that great faith. But don't you wish that you could? We have to ask, what was the faith of this writer? He is daring to tell us in this world that you and I live in, this world of change and decay, this world where our hearts are so often broken, where our faces are so often wet with tears, He says joy is a more abiding guest than sorrow. He does not claim, my friends, that an ideal world has been discovered. He frankly tells us that weeping may come and will come as an unwelcome guest in our lives. But He tells us, He reminds us, He encourages us 
This unwelcome guest is not going to be there forever. Tears may come, but they will be passing. When you think about it, and you think about the way we are, this is actually the opposite of what we usually speak of. Because we're usually reminding ourselves, well, we better enjoy because it's sure not going to last, is it? We look at children playing and, and in their innocence and we watch them and we have a mingling of envy and we have a mingling of pity. We envy them because they're so young, they're so carefree and they're having such a glorious time and we pity them because one day they're going to grow up and lose that childlike innocence. And we tell our young people, you enjoy these years of your youth because they're sure not going to be lasting and you're going to go old soon enough. And we're even envious sometimes that we ourselves are not as innocent and as carefree as they are. But our writer said weeping is for the night. Joy comes in the morning. How did he come to that conclusion? What brought the psalmist to the conclusion that it's not joy that's fleeting, but it's sorrow that's fleeting? It was not a faith that was born of a refusal to face the sordid facts of life. He does not believe that weeping is going to only endure for a night because he's shut his eyes to the source of our tears. He does not deny the reality of sin, nor does he deny the reality of pain. And we do not even find him as you read the whole psalm, and I would encourage you to read the entire psalm. You do not find him denying the final calamity that we call death. He faces all the terrifying foes that encompass us. And facing them all, he clings to this optimistic faith. And I want you to remember something. This optimistic faith is not the easy optimism of someone who's always had everything come up roses. When you read the psalm in its entirety, you know that sometimes his bread has landed jelly side down. The way Irma Bombeck used to write about it. You know, to be sure, there is something absolutely provoking, annoying, and just downright irritating in the preaching of someone you know has never put the efficacy of his preaching to test in the battles of life. Someone like the 22-year-old newly married youth minister that gets up and gives a 45-minute sermon on how to raise teenagers. And you're sitting there with your teenagers and you're thinking, man, I wish I knew as little about the subject as he does. We don't want someone that's never put the efficacy of their faith into practice telling us about it. We want to feel that we're hearing someone that life has beaten up just a little bit. Well, bless your heart, you are. 
Someone whose preaching is not just theory. Who's been through the battles of life. Who has a battle scar too to show for the efforts as they've battled in life. That's the glory of these Psalms. The writer is speaking out of his own experience. These Psalms were lived before they ever were put to paper and written. When this poet tells us, when he says weeping may endure for the night, but he says joy comes in the morning, he's telling us a truth that he has come to by the path of hard experience. He's bringing us a conviction that was hammered out on the anvil of his own soul in life. He even traces for us the road where he came to travel to this kind of faith. For years, life had dealt most kindly and gently with him. The hearse drew up in front of other homes, but not in front of his. He knew suffering and tears were a part of the human existence, but he didn't realize it. Reports of tragedies taking place in the lives of others somehow seemed strangely remote to him. And he'd tried. He'd tried desperately in some way to have sympathy for others. But he couldn't. Their stories of hurt, their stories of sorrow, they seemed to come from a distant world. And his prosperity continued so long that it all but intoxicated him. And he once said complacently in his prosperity, it's written there, I shall never be moved. And yet before he could realize what happened, life for him had toppled into ruins. What happened? He who had gone for years without an ache or a pain, suddenly found himself at the prey of some disease. The death sentence had been passed. And he must suffer. And there was no remedy but death. And in his bewilderment, he lost his faith. And with spiritual and physical health completely gone, a strange guest came into his home. That guest was weeping. He was not welcome. But he came. And the nights were long. And the nights were filled with agony. And when all earthly hope was gone, he decided to make one last effort. Perhaps the God who seemed to have forsaken him would help him even yet. And in his weakness, he threw himself into the everlasting arms of God. And God did not fail him. And he declares, he has turned my mourning into dancing. And he tells us with assurance, what God has done for him that God will do for us. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. 
It's this kind of faith. It's this kind of faith that keeps our hope alive. And keeping our hope alive, we can carry on with patient courage. Let's be honest. Sometimes it's hard to see things through with honor if hope is gone. Some manage it. But it's a very, very difficult proposition. And while some can carry on when hope is gone, there are many that cannot. I remember some years ago getting a late night phone call to see if I could conduct a funeral for a friend's daughter. These people were not what you would call church people. The daughter was not a church person. They didn't, they didn't go to church. They were nominally believers, you might say. The parents were an older couple. When I was growing up, they'd run a little small neighborhood grocery store. I used to ride my bicycle up there and buy cold drinks and candy bars and visit with them. They were good people, honest people, hard-working people, the kind of people you would call the salt of the earth. And they called me and they said, Tim, we remember you when you rode your bike up to our store. We don't go to church and we don't have a preacher. We need you to do a funeral for our daughter. Their daughter was grown. She had borrowed her mom and dad's car. Driven out deep into the woods to a deserted place alone. And she had taken her life. Had you been able to look into her face, you would have seen a very sad and very pathetic face. And you wonder, why did she do it? Why did she fling her life away in that manner? It was because she lost hope. Her todays were filled with trouble and perplexity. And all she could see ahead of her were a troop of tomorrows filled with trouble and perplexity that all looked as hopeless for her as today did. And she lost heart. And she gave up the fight. Weeping endures for the night. Our night of weeping might be long. And sometimes our night of weeping can be lonely. Oh my goodness, it can be very lonely. But we must not quit. And we must not give up. Because we're promised that joy is coming in the morning. This kind of faith can be a light to us during the night of weeping. 
This kind of faith can take away the bitterest sting of sorrow. Why is it so often, and what is it so often, that makes our sorrow so bitter? It's our attitude of finality. Our attitude that it cannot be remedied. So often our attitude towards sorrow is that of Poe's raven, nevermore. The blow falls and we look upon the ruins and we sob. Write this down, it's on the final exam. Our attitude would be totally different. If we would truly believe that weeping is temporary and that joy is coming in the morning. It's a poor analogy, but it's the best I can come up with. But it's somewhat akin to the way things are at at our house now. The boys are grown, the boys are gone. The house is quiet, the boys are away, and for just me and Norma, sometimes the house is desperately lonely, and it seems very, very big. And sometimes when I get up early in the morning and I go in to turn on the coffee pot, I I actually wish that I could stumble over a laundry basket. Or see a coat hanger hanging from the cabinet above my coffee pot. Now you need to understand this. When Matt was in college, he would, well we thought he was sitting up late at night on the computer studying and writing papers. I later realized that when I had so many games downloaded on my computer that, and then I saw his grade point average, I knew studying wasn't actually part of the equation. But he would realize at 2 o'clock in the morning he didn't have clean clothes. And so as I walked into the kitchen before I could get to my coffee pot, because as you know that's the first thing that happens in the morning is the buttons pushed and the coffee starts making. But before I could stumble to my coffee pot, there's a basket there of clothes and a note scribbled, Dad, please wash my clothes. Or maybe he had washed his clothes and there was a coat hanger, one of those coat hangers with the white paper on it. And he, in pencil on the white paper of the coat hanger, please put my clothes in the dryer and it's hanging on the cabinet where when I turn on the coffee pot, it's right in front of my eyes. Well, the house is so empty, sometimes I wish I'd stumble over a laundry basket or, or see a coat hanger hanging from the kitchen cabinet. But... We'll get a phone call. Or we'll get a text message. And all of a sudden, everybody's mood. Well, everybody, that's me and Norma. Especially Norma. The mood totally changes. Brian will send a text that he and Abby are planning to come for a couple of days. Or Matt's going to call and say that he and Ryan and the boys are going to be over. And suddenly, everything turns around 180 degrees. The house is still just as empty as it was. But the loneliness is gone. Because we're expecting them to come. And when they come, the house is going to be filled again. 
Weeping endures for the night, but joy is coming in the morning, is what the psalmist said. When we pass through that long night of weeping, we know a guest is coming to us. He's on his way. He's going to unlock the door. He's going to come in. He's coming in the morning. And that guest that's coming in the morning is joy. And when we truly, deep down inside, in our heart of hearts, have that faith, we'll know it. And we'll know all is going to be okay. And like the songs Carol led a moment ago, faith is the victory. And that kind of faith is possible in 2023. It's possible in our day and time. The psalmist had been suffering from some deadly disease. And he was so close upon the gates of death that he almost was reckoned among the dead. And in his desperate plight, he cried to God. And God heard him. And God healed him. Can we believe then that God's going to always heal the sick and suffering that cry unto Him? We cannot. There are those who pray just as earnestly as this poet. And yet in spite of their prayers and in spite of the prayers of those who love them, they pass from life. And there are others who go on suffering for long torturing years. Paul was one such as this. He prayed three times that his thorn in the flesh would be removed. He prayed earnestly for removal of that. But his request was not granted. But God said, my grace is sufficient. God said, Paul, I'm not going to remove your thorn in the flesh, but I will be, give you the strength to bear up under it. And yet, while God does not always see fit to give physical healing in answer to our prayers, God does something far better. God gives to one who prays. One who really prays an inner strength, a calm courage that enables them to bear the load that's been laid upon them. No matter what that load is, no matter how heavy that load might be, God gives in answer to prayer a quiet heart an abiding peace, and a fullness of life that makes mere physical healing sometimes seem small and trifling. I've seen folks, folks with the most vigorous of bodies who were weak and sickly and anemic in their soul. And yet... Oftentimes, our bodily weakness drives us to Jesus and becomes a source of spiritual strength. And we learn with Paul, God's grace is sufficient. You see, for us, for you and for me, this text has a richness of meaning that even the psalmist himself was a stranger to. 
Because since the psalmist penned those words, Jesus has come. And He brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. And yet, <clears throat> if you look around us in the religious world today, what men have done is take something pure and something simple, and they've made it complicated. Are you listening? I'm very sincere when I say that I believe I can put the gospel into six words. Six words. Here they are. Jesus offers His friendship to you. It was that friendship that changed the lives of those who followed Him when He called. And today, He's essentially the same. And He still calls us to follow Him. He calls us to surrender our pride to surrender our pride and our selfishness to His way of life. Do you remember when Jesus ate the Passover with the apostles that night? They were in an upper room in Jerusalem. Jesus washed their feet and He taught them a lesson in humility. And then Jesus began to teach them even more. Here's what John records for us in John chapter 15, verses 13 through 15. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Did you catch verse 14? You're my friends. If you do whatsoever I command you. Jesus tells them, Greater love hath no man than lay down his life for his friends. And he says, You're my friends. If you do what I command you to do. And then he goes on and tells them, From this point you're not servants, but you're my friends. Their relationship with Jesus began with friendship. Jesus offers His friendship to you. What does it mean to be His friend? To do what He commands. To live life His way. To live His kind of life. And the same Jesus that called Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew and all the others calls us. What did He call them to do? He called them to follow Him. To be His friends. And He calls us today to be His friends. It involves obedience to His will. It involves living life His way. If we're going to be His friends, we have to do what He commands us to do. Following Him, being redeemed, it means obeying His terms of pardon. It involves repenting of everything that's sin in our life, confessing His name before men and being buried in baptism for the remission of past sins. It also involves a life of faithfulness because the same Jesus said, 
be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. So here's the question before the house. Do you know Jesus Christ this morning? Is Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of your life? If He's not Lord and Master of all of your life, He's not Lord and Master at all, of your life, at all in your life. Is He your friend? Have you lived His kind of life? Are there changes you need to make? If you need to make changes, and we can help you do that to be a friend of Jesus Christ, to live His kind of life, this is your opportunity to come and let us help you do that as together we stand and while we sing.